Did that sync up the audio? Who fucking knows? Hi. Me too. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Chillinoy podcast. If you'd like, you can tune into the video version of this podcast at chillinoy.net slash YouTube. A lot of our listeners have requested that we release video versions of our podcast, and this will be our first foray into just that. So stay patient with us while we learn the ropes. The Chillinoy podcast is a platform for open discussions centered around civil liberties. We talk about the decriminalization of drugs, cannabis industry news, and more. The podcast also includes guests from the entertainment industry, including musicians and comedians. In today's episode, I sit down with Chris Becker from the Honey Bee Collective. I felt like Chris would be an interesting person to speak with for multiple reasons. I've noticed that Chris seems to focus and champion important causes like sustainability, equality, and opportunity. If you're a longtime listener of this show, you know why this is so important to me. Chris is from Colorado and has experience working in the legal cannabis industry in multiple states. For all of these reasons and more, I felt like Chris would make for an interesting conversation, and that he did. The Chillinois Podcast is funded by listeners like you. You can help to support the Chillinois Podcast with a contribution of your choice at chillinois.net slash support. Your contribution helps us to afford hosting fees to distribute our content and equipment to capture our content. You can make a one-time, monthly, or yearly contribution of your choice. And here's an idea. If you're able, contribute $3 monthly. In a year, you will have contributed $36 to Chillinois. This may not seem like much, but I assure you, every little bit helps. Thank you for your continued support and enjoy the episode. Chris, thank you for sitting down with me on the Chillinois podcast. Welcome. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Appreciate your time. Yeah. And so for folks that don't know you, Chris, um, can you just give a brief introduction as to, to who you are? Sure. Yeah, I'm Chris Becker. I am a co-founder of the Honeybee Collective. We are a sustainable cannabis brand launching in Colorado next month. Um, I have a background of about five years working in the cannabis industry. Uh, before that, was working in the addiction recovery industry. Um, very passionate about the cannabis industry and seeing it evolve in a way that is um, respectful to workers, respectful to the environment and uh, really fair and just. I I see cannabis as a generational wealth opportunity and um, as a plant that has the potential to not only heal people, but to heal the environment if it's grown and processed in the right way. And so I'm passionate about seeing the cannabis industry evolve into something that, you know, respects the earth and people in that way. Um, So yeah, I... uh, don't know what else to say (laughs) well hey how about this uh you can find the honeybee collective online at honeybeecollective.com uh you can find chris on twitter at chris honeybee and uh, we'll put both of those in the show notes if that makes it easier on you folks uh, so that you can connect online um so yeah uh employee owned community driven based in sustainability if i can say that 
Um, that's that's exactly why I wanted to bring you on to the show. I'll, I just have to say, I'll keep it short because people have heard me say this too many times by now. The first time I went to Colorado, I was like a kid in a candy store. I get cannabis. I go to uh, a national park. And the first thing I see is, is litter cannabis packaging and it was so sad to me because like i made sure to dispose of it properly and everything else and i just assumed that everybody else that consumed would be of a like mind you know of a similar mindset and would never dare to throw something like that in a national forest and so but the thought came to me it's like well don't blame that totally on the consumer even though i mean the consumer should be responsible and disposed properly but it should also the blame should also be on the companies that are putting all of this stuff in you know loads of plastic that mm. you know you know so when i saw i you had made a tweet about uh packaging um and that's that's when i first really got on to uh that's when i first started following you um tell us about like from your perspective like why this, this is an easy softball question for sure, but why is sustainability so important for you and how do you um, plan to achieve it? Yeah, so um, I'm definitely a big like hippie tree hugger, spend a lot of time outside and, and, and want to see the earth uh, be, be treated well. Um, and uh, it, it, a lot of people think of the cannabis industry as being very green. Um, but if you if you dive into the environmental impact of growing uh, and distributing and processing cannabis, it's not all that green. Um, there's a lot of uh, carbon output from the grows, uh, especially it's and that that carbon output can be very uh, ge geography dependent and also grow style dependent. Um, a lot of people grow indoors, which is really a, a legacy of prohibition. You know, you couldn't grow outdoors for fear of getting caught. Um, there's some argument that there's some superiority to indoor grown cannabis. And I, 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 I buy the argument that you can get more, it's slightly more consistent cannabis out of an indoor grow, but, um, it can be very detrimental to the environment depending where you're growing. And then to your point, there's all this waste. Um, we, uh, a jar of, uh, an eighth of cannabis, which for your audio listeners, I'm holding one up on the camera, an eighth of cannabis is three and a half grams of cannabis flower that comes in a jar that typically weighs 11 grams more or less. So that's 11 grams of plastic going into a landfill forever. Um, just to have, you know, between a few hours and a couple of days of enjoyment from this product. Um, that is not, uh, good for the earth. That's not good for our future. Um, and it's not what I want to see and not, not what I wanted to do for as a company. Yeah. And, and just to, I actually pulled up the tweet where it, it kind of piggybacks off of exactly what you were just saying. You said for every pound of flour sold, that results in 3.14 pounds of plastic that will sit in the land, uh, sit in a landfill forever, which is just, that's crazy. When you put that into perspective, like you say, three and a half grams for a few hours of enjoyment, when you break it down to how much would come out of a pound, how much plastic would be used to package a pound. It's, it's sad. It's it sad. really is. Sad. Yeah. And, 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 um, you know, to, 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 to dig in further to sustainability, um, there's a, there's a lot, you mentioned how like it would be better if the consumer had thrown away that package. Right. Um, it would be, but 
in the sustainability world, there is a lot of corporate greenwashing and placing responsibility on consumers that um, really like consumers can have a negligible impact relative to uh, corporations. Um, it, it, it's, it, it's absurd the, the waste that some corporations will put out and then, you know, put out a big recycling campaign. Well, like, <laughs> it's, it, it's just so hypocritical. Uh, so we didn't want to be like that. So we really dove into uh, what, what is practical sustainability look like in the cannabis industry? What can be achieved now? What can we strive for in the future? And, th and that's what we're working towards with the Honeybee Collective as far as our products are concerned. Sweet. And so can I ask like specifically like with any, uh, with product packaging or anything else, like have you achieved anything that seems like that you're set on that goal that you will achieve that goal? Yeah. So, um, when we were searching for packaging, we really wanted to use all compostable packaging. Um, we, we, we much prefer compostable packaging over plastics, um, or even over recyclable stuff. Um, especially compostable plastics that can have a, uh, potentially carbon, uh, carbon negative, uh, uh, impact on the environment. Like if they're hemp compostable packaging, um, that could potentially be car carbon negative or even, uh, or neutral. Um, right now, nobody in the world has a childproof approved package for cannabis flower in bulk. There's no eighth container, um, and so there's the, like, you can get a package that is compostable, but the consumer has to cut the top off of it to, to, to remove the seal to then compost it. Um, so we went with tin for products that we can't, um, find a compostable solution for, um, pla kind of plastics that are advertised as recyclable often are not as recyclable as people think. Right. Um, yeah. So most of these, most of these eighth jars are made with what's called number five plastic. And that's considered a hard to recycle plastic. Only specialized facilities can have any use for it. Um, and if you put it in single stream recycling, it'll often get sorted out and just go in the trash. Um, and even if it were actually recyclable plastic markets have dried up for plastics to recycle. Um, so only a small percentage of stuff plastic that you put into recycling actually gets recycled. Um, if you put aluminum, a can, uh, a tin into a uh, single stream recycling, something like 95 plus percent of that actually gets turned into another product. So we think that's a much more practical solution, um, for, for, for what's achievable today. Nice. Nice. Yeah. What you're saying, it absolutely mirrors uh, something that we've heard before on the show, uh, of a person, um, in Arizona started a company, uh, called resonate. And it's precisely for the reason that you're talking about, not only are most facilities not even equipped, uh, to, to process those plastics. Some of them actually, the machinery allows a container like the one you just showed to fall right through. And, mm. and then it goes just right to the landfill. Mm. And so <clears throat> this company has figured out how to position these receptacles at dispensaries so that they can take and repurpose the containers, which is super cool. Super cool Love stuff. That. Love Hell that. Yeah. Hell yeah. So um, tell us a little bit about, I just saw you in Forbes, dude. Uh, tell us about <laughs> Thank you. being a collective. What does that mean? I feel like this is going to really hit home uh, for some of the Chilinoians that are listening because we don't have any collectives in Illinois. What is a collective? 
so I, I, when we talked about sustainability, I only touched on environmental sustainability, but I believe uh, that there's a, a huge sustainability re- issue related to wealth inequality in this country. And our research with people that smoke cannabis it supports that. Um, so I guess to, to back up, when we started the Honeybee Collective, I saw that there were a lot of companies being started um, but nobody was actually asking people that smoke weed, like, hey, are we solving a problem that you actually have? Would you want to buy from this company? Does this sound cool to you? It's just a bunch of like people making stuff because they thought it was a good idea. So we did a lot of research to support our thesis of people want to support a company that shares their values and is, and is having a positive impact on their communities. And we wanted to know what are the biggest issues facing the world today, uh, according to people who consume cannabis had 2000 people participate in our surveys uh over 70 percent of them identify as daily cannabis consumers and they think the top three issues facing the world today are climate change wealth inequality and racism um and 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 we saw that we could very authentically uh, have an impact on climate change and wealth inequality with uh a business model that treated more workers and employees more equitably um so to answer your question, um, we're an employee-owned company. I, so I, I, I worked for a cannabis company that had promised me uh, shares in the company. And then when they went broke, like that, that promise, they let me go. I never had any shares. It was meaningless, right? Um, and I see all this wealth being accumulated by select people in the cannabis industry. It's especially a problem in Illinois where you've got very limited licenses and pretty much exclusively wealthy, politically connected people are the people that are making money in this industry in a state like Illinois. Um, so I, I saw this lack of uh, equity, you know, and, and I saw this furthering of wealth inequality happening with this plant that I love so much and I'm so passionate about and, and think that it could put a lot of money in a lot of people's pockets if we do it right. So we created this company as an employee-owned company. We, we, we dove into like, looking at unions versus looking at like different ownership structures and voting structures ultimately landed on employee ownership as being a really efficient and effective way of having a company that um, always treats its workers with dignity and respect. Um, And also statistically, they're more successful companies, companies that are employee owned companies tend to be more profitable. They tend to uh, keep their employees through down to down cycles in business um, when other companies let them go. And there's just all these benefits to being an employee owned company that we found in our research. So um, we have uh, four co-founders um, and, and we all uh, have, are committed to making sure that all of our future employees get a living wage um, and, and have equity ownership in the company so that they're true owners. And, that, and that's how they come to work every day. Awesome. Very cool. And if you, if you don't mind, I know that this can be like a a huge topic, but um, since we've got a lot of other topics that that we can get into as briefly as you, as you can, can you tell us maybe uh, the benefit of a collective over a union? And the reason that I asked that question is because unions are uh, cannabis uh, dispensaries and uh, cultivation centers are unionizing, uh, across the state of Illinois. And I think it's because it's their only, re- it's their only option, right? 
And right. look, look, get what you can, right? Uh, but you did a, you just mentioned you did an analysis of, of all the different approaches and you mentioned unionizing. Is there a reason uh, a collective works better than a union from your perspective or maybe in your, uh, your situation even? Sure. Yeah. And I want to clarify that we stand with anybody that's trying to make working conditions better for people in the cannabis industry, anybody that's trying to do that, uh, no matter what avenue they're pursuing. Um, and to your point, um, people in Illinois probably don't have the opportunity to, to, to create collectives because of the way the laws are. Um, we, uh, see employee ownership as being very efficient because employees get to vote, um, in the same way that a union would, uh, kind of negotiate in, uh, in, uh, cooperation with an employer. Right. So, um, it, re it removes this kind of union layer of bureaucracy and just puts the employees in control. There are some, um, ways that companies have exploited that or made it maybe more fair to early employees and less fair to later employees. Um, but we hope to avoid those issues based on like just evaluating how other, how other companies have struggled with that and asking other people that work for employee owned companies, like, Hey, what have been the pitfalls to, to, to your situation? Gotcha. Cool. Well, thanks for diving into that. Hey, um, let me share this and see how this video sharing works. I'm guessing these are the four founders. Correct. Yep. All right, cool. Yeah. Well, folks, if you're watching the uh, video version of this podcast, which I intend to release if everything comes together, it's a new thing for us. So be patient with us as we learn the ropes. Um, but I've got the Honeybee Collective website uh, pulled up. Once again, that's honeybeecollective.com. And I've got the investment option, which is which is super cool. Tell us a little bit about uh, the opportunity to invest. Um, I think it's awesome that you offer this and uh I just got to say, don't be surprised if you see a uh, investment come in from me within the next month. I appreciate that. Um, we'd be honored to have you as an investor. We, we, um, we, you know, we, when we're, when you're getting a company off the ground, you have to have some money to, to pay for your marketing and for your packaging and all that kind of stuff. Um, and we eliminated a lot of startup costs by, uh, the way we started our company as a brand to partner with other licensees that already are in the cannabis industry and source from them. But, um, ultimately we, uh, decided to crowdfund our, uh, our launch. Um, when you're starting, when you need money for a company, you can go to a bank, you can go to venture capitalists, you can go to private equity, uh, people, um, or recently with new changes in crowdfunding laws, you can go to your community. Um, and I guess to backtrack the, be the better, more concise way to say this is usually investing in companies, early stage companies is restricted to wealthy people. You have to be an accredited investor, which means you have a million dollars uh, in assets outside of your uh, primary residence, or you have a quarter million dollars in income a year by, by either standard. That's a wealthy person, right? Um, for years, that was the law. And it was designed to prevent people from losing all their money on speculative investments. But um, in, an, in, in, an, in an age where we've got industries that are growing so rapidly, like cannabis, going from a total addressable market size of a few billion to 30 plus billion in just like four years, right? That's a generational wealth opportunity that everybody should have a chance to participate in. Um, so we decided to crowdfund our launch through the main best platform. People can invest as little as hundred dollars. They'll get $175 back uh, for each hundred dollars invested. Uh, so it's a one and three quarter times return. 
and um, that you make money when we make money. It's a revenue sharing note. So as we have revenue coming in, we're going to be paying out a percentage of that revenue. So you don't have to wait for us to be profitable. You don't have to wait for the company to sell. You're going to start getting paid back as we start having money come in. Very cool. Very cool, man. Well, um, I want to get back to money and capital here in a moment. Um, but first I wanted to, um, well, before I segue, do you have anything else you'd like to mention with regard to Honeybee Collective and uh, anything else maybe that, that you feel is important that, that we haven't touched on as we we're about to go all over the place, baby. So um, <laughs> do you have anything else like focused on Honeybee that you wanted to, to get on the table? Um, you know, we, we'd be honored to have any of your listeners as investors in our company. We're really trying to create a movement in cannabis that respects workers, respects the environment and, um, and, and preserves the kind of communal culture of cannabis that started the industry. The original, the origins of the cannabis industry were collectives in California. By law, you had to be, um, a, a kind of a collective that people shared resources to get medicine to sick patients. And we want to preserve that culture. So if, if any of that rings true to you, please check out our, our uh, investment page on Mainvest, um, and uh, you get a great return while supporting uh, this movement that, that we're trying to create. Yes, folks. So if you're interested in that, just uh, look in the show notes uh, for this episode, and there will be a link to their investment page. So um, I love that you have the $100 option and stuff because uh, it gives folks an opportunity to invest, even if they don't have a lot of capital, you know what I mean? So honestly, the hundred dollar investments are the ones I'm most honored by for, for the people that I know that were stretching to, to, to get involved in this movement. I'm so honored by that. Um, so yeah, we really wanted to create something that could give everybody the opportunity to be in this, in this industry. Oh yeah. Hell yeah. Well, thanks for doing that. And, um, Hello again. I hope you're enjoying the episode. As we mentioned at the top of the episode, this is our first foray into producing video podcasts. If you haven't yet, please be sure to subscribe to our channel or podcast wherever you're streaming this from. And as we start to foray into producing video content, I wanted to take this opportunity to tell you, if you didn't already know, that we released the first two episodes of my very first Grow Journal. You can check out those episodes now. We've put a link to each episode in the show notes for this podcast episode. You can also find the episodes and all future episodes on chillinoy.net slash YouTube. Thanks for listening or watching or both and enjoy the rest of the episode. To segue, um, you brought up addiction and recovery. Um, and I think I've seen you post about it. Tell us just a little bit about your I guess it sounds so cliche, but your journey with uh, addiction and recovery. Sure. <laughs> so um, let's see, I guess uh, I began my journey with substance abuse at a pretty young age. Um, I was exposed to amphetamines at a young age with uh, Adderall and Ritalin and that kind of thing. Um, in my teens, uh, I started drinking around 14, smoking weed around 14, um, was exposed to more addictive substances like, uh, opiates around, uh, 21 and really had kind of a constant reliance on substances for, for, for dealing with my emotional state that, that, that was, I mean, it summed up my life. I, I was in constant pursuit of drugs and alcohol 
to feel better. Um, and, uh, that led to a lot of consequences. I've been arrested a lot of times. I've been to rehab a bunch of times. Um, and, uh, all, all of those consequences were really a result of that constant pursuit and obsession with, uh, drugs and alcohol and, and specifically like opiates and alcohol were, were my real toxic poisons for me. Um, I, uh, eventually went to rehab and stayed clean for a number of years. I, I was abstinent from all substances for a number of years. Um, but I was working in the addiction industry. Um, and it's a really tough place to be mentally. Uh, it's not a very advanced industry. People die a lot. Um, there's a, not a, not a lot of professionalism. And I was working in a high stress situation where I would, uh, uh, I, I was an interventionist. Actually, if you've seen the show intervention, I, I did that professionally. I trained with some of the people on that show. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's a tough world and it's all, it's a lot of stress. And, um, so I eventually uh, had a relapse on, on opiates and, and alcohol and, um, it was short lived. And I, I decided to, there, when you're in the addiction world, there's a lot of stigma and shame about relapse. And, um, and it, 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 it's a lonely place to be. It's very isolating. Um, and there's also not a lot of approval about cannabis in, in the addiction recovery world either. It's, uh, very stigmatized, um, in the abstinent based recovery world. So, um, I eventually got out of that job and started using cannabis again. And, and it really kind of saved my life. Um, you know, the, the, the same way rehab had before, um, it, it brought me a lot of uh, stress relief. I have a lot of chronic pain issues as well. And so, um, yeah, that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of my journey with addiction and, and recovery and how cannabis has kind of played into that. Um, it, it really has been, uh, a, a godsend for me, um, in terms of finding the relief I need. Yeah. Well, thank you for, for getting into that. Um, I think it's important for people to hear, you know, that perspective and, um, like you wrote while cannabis provided, uh, pain relief, physical and emotional for you, you needed to stay off of deadly opiates. And I like that you followed up this statement with, with all that said, there are countless cannabis companies making un unsubstantiated medical claims about their products. And the FDA is going to have a field day when they do decide to start sending cease and desist letters for these flagrant violations. Um, I bring up cannabis and addiction and recovery for multiple reasons, and we'll, we'll get into them right now. But the first reason is because I've seen you... Um, interact with Kevin Sabet and smart approaches to marijuana. Um, they've been on our show before um, and they seem to champion an abstinent only um, form of recovery. Uh, can you speak to why that may not be uh, the best approach? Uh, can you, I'm honestly asking, can you speak to that? Sure. Yeah. Statistically, abstinence-based recovery isn't really evidence-based. Um, there, there's not a lot of data that supports an abstinence-based solution to recovery as being effective for people. Um, I think it's highly stigmatizing and uh, it's 
based in it's really grounded in stigma it's not grounded in anything scientific um studies show that when people have access to medication assisted treatments for opiate addiction um that they uh, stay clean longer that they have less consequences as a, as a result of their addiction um, and they're able to get back into normal life um from a personal perspective um abstinence-based recovery can take a long time to get back to any semblance of a normal life um to remove all substances from your life entirely is a drastic change for a lot of people um and it's uh not realistic for a lot of people um and and i think abstinence-based treatment um pushing that is really pushing from a uh, pushing something that's only accessible to privileged people um it's a it, it, I can't even tell you my rehab bill, my, my parents spent a fortune tr trying to keep me alive in rehabs. Um, and then working in the addiction industry, I would all the time hear people saying, I don't have the money to, to afford this solution that you're proposing. So I don't think he's proposing something that works well. Um, and, uh, I, I, and it's not grounded in anything that I, I think is evidence-based. Can you speak to anything else that I don't mean to make you be the person that has to take on everything that smart approaches to marijuana says, but I do think it's important to acknowledge their presence and frankly, oftentimes disingenuous arguments. Um, I, I do think that's important. A lot of people disagree with me. A lot of people mm -hmm. disagree with me. They say that, that I'm giving them more press than, than they would ever get. And I, I disagree for one thing that just happened in your home state, Colorado. But before we get to that, unless you want to go to that, can you like what else have you seen them support slash, you know, uh, pat themselves on the back about that you just disagree on? I think it's important to talk about this. It's important to correct wrong information with correct information. You know, I saw them cheering that. Uh harm reduction measures were, were removed from a recent um, uh, SAMHSA bill, SAMHSA funding bill. Harm reduction measures were removed from that bill, as, and they cheered, cheered that, claimed responsibility for, for that. Um, harm reduction is a, a cost-saving, life-saving uh, <laughs> bunch of practices from um, providing safer access to drugs for people to providing like access points to treatment for people and also providing like safer ways to use drugs. Um, so specifically, there was all this uproar about how the, 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 the Biden administration was going to put crack pipes in people's hands for free. And really that fear mongering came from one line in the SAMHSA budget, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Administration budget, um, that was going to allow them to provide um, clean syringes and clean crack pipes or meth pipes to, to, to drug users. There's a significant public health benefit to providing both of those to people. Um, if one person gets, if one uninsured person gets MRSA from a burn on their lip from reusing a shared crack pipe that's, um, that, that, that's hot or has a jagged edge or something like that, you could probably pay for an entire country's worth of crack pipes, right? Like these are little glass things that cost a buck, two bucks, right? One uninsured person, like having a, a systemic infection going to the hospital is going to cost the government 
a hundred thousand dollars. Right. Um, so, uh, not to mention the lives that can be saved, um, clean needles prevent HIV and other, uh, like needle sharing diseases and bloodborne diseases and that kind of thing. Um, all this fear mongering based in their holier than thou abstinence based view of the world, um, is really actively hurting people and costing the government and taxpayers money. Absolutely. And to, to your point of actively hurting people, and this is why I do think it's important to talk about this group and what they do is that they have arguably made one of the most radical changes to the Colorado medical cannabis law in history. And I know it's a short history of legalized cannabis, but Chris, can you tell us about what happened in Colorado with the medical cannabis law, what Sam lobbied for? Absolutely. So last year, House Bill 1317 was introduced, and it was a uh, bill that would have done a couple of things. Um, it would have required concentrate manufacturers to um, divide up their products into multiple doses, 10, 10 individual doses. Um, and, and the big thing it did is it reduced patient access um, from what a, a normal medical patient could buy um, bulk concentrates when they, when they went to the dispensary. And that helps them have much more affordable medicine. Um, they could buy, I think it was like um, 28 grams. So you could buy an ounce of concentrates and, and while that might be a lot to have um, to some people, uh, that's a, that's a very normal monthly stock up purchase for, for a lot of people. Um, and something that not everybody knows is like Colorado has a lot of dispensaries, but in rural areas, there might be no, no dispensaries. There are some counties that have not uh, allowed cannabis businesses. So um, if you spend any time in a medical dispensary, you'll see people that live in rural Colorado that don't have a dispensary within two or three hours of them coming in to buy bulk concentrates. And um, Sam and, and their fear-mongering friends came along and said um, patients shouldn't have access to that much cannabis concentrates at a time. They said it's too much. Based on what? No, no real scientific information. Um, there, there is uh, one mother who unfortunately lost her son, um, and uh, she claims that it that he had suffered from a marijuana-induced psychosis, and that and that's why he lost his life. I believe he he took his own life. And while that's tragic, um, I believe he also had other substances in his system when, when that happened, and a history of other substance abuse. And 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 it's a chicken. Or, I mean, it's like a cause. The correlation is not causation. One person commits right. suicide that uses cannabis. Um, that, that doesn't mean that it's cannabis concentrates making people do that. Now, can I ask, I, am I wrong in thinking this kid was not even from Colorado? I don't remember. So I don't want to say, okay. Yeah. Well then we won't go there. Uh, folks do the research, but I'm pretty sure there was testimony from a kid from Texas that basically said like, like, you know, the parents testified that their kid had just gone off the deep end because of cannabis concentrates. And I've seen, I'm pretty sure I've seen Sam share that testimony as well. And my whole thing was like, okay, so there's a kid, not even in the state of Colorado that has this issue. So what do we do? We punish medical patients in the state of Colorado. Mm -hmm. The craziest thing to me about it is that all it really does is cause the medical 
cannabis patient, if they need that amount of concentrate to purchase it at the adult use tax rate. Cause look, Chris, I'm, I'm past the statute of limitations on this. I hope I used to go to um, Colorado and in store jump eight grams here, eight grams there, eight grams here, eight grams everywhere. Right. Um, and, and I'd stock up with ounces of concentrate. Um, but the medical cannabis card, because you're in a tracking system will prevent you from doing that. You will have hit your eight gram limit for the day. Crazy mm-hmm. to me that, that a, a person with medical access is technically speaking more restricted than somebody who just came to the state as a tourist. Well, and, and, and tech, so technically the state is cracking down on that, what they call looping or, or, or purchasing over your limit. Um, now chain dispensaries, which a lot of dispensaries do own multiple locations are required to track whether you've made a purchase at any of their other locations in that day so that, they, so that they don't go <laughs> over that limit. Yeah. Darn. Damn. Well, shit. Yeah. I'll have to keep that in mind for next time. <laughs> so, so yeah, I'm glad we got into that. I think that's why I think it's important people. This is the most, uh, what did the, I saw, hold on a second. Um, Americans for safe access said this is the single biggest rollback of patient rights. And so yep. for the people that want to say that, you know, Sam's this nobody group and you're the only person giving them any publicity, I'm sorry, but they're achieving change. And I disagree with, with the change that they're pushing for. So I think it's important to take all of that stuff head on in the spirit of that and kind of wrapping back to the fact that you're a collective, um, how do you intend to make substantive reform for cannabis? How do you contend? How do you intend to keep the ball rolling in the right direction? And the spirit of that question is lobbying. These companies, yeah. you know, multi-state operators, Sam, they have these dollars coming from who knows where. I'm not going to make any allegations that they can dedicate to focused lobbying, and they can pull out these, you know, straw man arguments. How do you intend to achieve substantive reform or just keep the ball rolling in the right direction? So it's a great question. And from an advocate perspective, it gets very frustrating coming up against these, especially when it's industry lobbying groups that claim to be allies of the consumer. Um, promoting laws that are actually anti-consumer and certainly anti-competitive and anti-small business. Um, So from a personal perspective, I always put my uh, needs and wants as a consumer and, and, and of other consumers that I know before any business consideration. So that's number one is like, that's just who I am. And that's what I'll always promote. And I'll promote, I'll promote initiatives that are bad for my business. If it's good for me and my friends, right? Like, and, and the people I care about and the people that have been uh, left out of this, this opportunity. So that that's, that's how I approach uh, like advocacy and lobbying. Um, I attend lobby days with normal. I, I write um, my legislators, both, uh, in Colorado and back where I'm from in Maryland, even though I'm not a constituent anymore, just so they're hearing, 
um, the sides of the argument that I think that they're not hearing from the industry groups and from these, uh, fear mongers like Sam and that kind of thing. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the only point, like the only thing I would say that might be valid about like that, that, that criticism of like, we're, we're giving Sam publicity, they're doing the most damage in state houses. So that's where we really need to be right is is getting the ear of legislators um giving them reasons to care about the cannabis consumer um because they're gonna they're gonna support kind of the the, the louder initiative <laughs> i mean if anything shows us it, it, like it, if there's anything i've learned about politics just from being an observer it's like politicians support where the money and the votes are going to come from you know and if, and if they think that your side is louder than the other side and has more votes. That's what they'll support. So, um, yeah, it's great if Sam wants to bring a couple uh, grieving mothers to the state house and, and tour them around and, and have some meetings with legislators. But if a hundred cannabis consumers show up and um, testify as to the very real changes in their lives that they've had from from having legal access to cannabis or or anything positive can about cannabis they're going to start to get outweighed. It's just like Twitter. It's a ratio. <laughs> Hell yeah. Hell yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for saying that because I think that is, that's like the next step, right? You know, not only acknowledge the opposition, but be there to counter the, uh, the opposition, be there for lobbying days and so on and so forth. Um, so, so yeah. Um, yeah, man. Well, thank you for getting into that. I think one thing that is worth bringing up, you know, cause you, you mentioned it, kind of in passing and we, we locked eyes. We knew what we were talking about, but for folks that maybe didn't know uh, what you're talking about, you just made a tweet today. Uh, so you're talking about lobbying, right? And, and mm -hmm. how Sam, since they're lobbyists, but also cannabis trade or uh, associations um, exist now. And you made a tweet uh, just four hours ago, actually cannabis trade associations are just like OPEC for weed totally un-American behavior from these companies and their executives. To close out the show, um, well, really quick, I just want to give people more background. Uh, if you hadn't heard yet, the Cannabis Business Association of Illinois, which represents Cresco Labs, Columbia Care, Curaleaf, Acreage Holdings, um, IESO, which some of you may know is Little Egypt, um, then Carbondale, New Era, PTS, Pharmacan. I'm naming them all, people. I don't give a fuck nature's grace and wellness. Um, these people are opposing a bill to allow social equity owned cannabis craft cultivation businesses to increase their canopy size. It's a bill that we just talked about in the last episode. Um, what's sorry. I wanted to make sure to give people the details as to what you were referring yeah. to. Why do you feel that, um, cannabis trade associations or associations, uh, trade associations in general are un-American? So um, I, I've always heard that America was supposed to be a free market economy, that it was supposed to be the land of opportunity, um, that anybody could come here with a few dollars in their pocket and with enough hard work and a little talent could make it. Um, but sometimes that looks like a pipe dream. And 
cannabis trade organizations often fight for things that would benefit their members at the expense of the uh, entrepreneurs and just citizens of communities where they operate. Um, and, and, and I don't like it. And I think it's un-American and I think it's anti-competitive. Um, I think if it was done in any other industry, there'd be antitrust investigations, uh, out the ass because it's, um, you know, ultimately it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a problem with, we shouldn't allow lobbying in general. Um, the, 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 I think aside from our research saying that like wealth inequality and, and climate change are big issues. I really think that the single biggest thing that we could do to change the course of politics in this country, uh, is to change citizens United, right. And disallow lobbying and disallow corporations from being treated like people. You shouldn't have a bit, a bigger voice because you have more money. That's that is not fair, right? No. Um, you you should have the biggest voice because you have the most people because you have the best ideas. That that's that's how I think democracy ought to work. It shouldn't be influenced by cash. Um, so, <laughs> cannabis trade organizations are just they're always promoting toxic shit, man, and 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 their members are always promoting toxic shit. So let me take a step back. Why am I so passionate about this? My first job in the cannabis industry, I worked for a company that participated in the limited license market in Maryland. I was a brand ambassador for them. Uh, so I had to go out in the market and tell everybody why they were so great. One day, uh, the, the state of Maryland um, decided that uh, they hadn't issued enough licenses to enough uh, so like minority operators that the, the, um, the industry was uh, it like inequitably owned. Um, and it was dominated by basically white men. And they said, we're going to, um, issue, uh, 15 more licenses to, to try to write this situation. And, and, and we're going to issue those licenses to minority operators that apply and win in the same way that the other people had won. Um, the company I worked for sued the state to prevent the issuance of those licenses. And they were rightfully called assholes and racists and all kinds of terrible stuff. And they withdrew the lawsuit a couple of days later. So I know that loudly uh, railing against companies' bad practices can actually get them to change their behavior, right? I, I've seen it in action. That same company has now rolled out a $25 million fund to invest in social equity operators to try to right their wrongs, whether they're still participating in limited licenses, but you know, at least they're doing something to, to change that behavior. Right. Um, like I said, I think everybody ought to have the opportunity to participate in this market. I think it's a huge generational wealth opportunity and anybody standing in the way of that I think is fighting for the wrong side. Yeah. Listen to this response that they gave when they were asked why they oppose the bill in Illinois. First of all, they did not deny their plans to oppose the bill. They said that they maintain that in this truncated legis sorry, I'm gonna try, I'm gonna start that over. <laughs> they maintain that in this truncated legislative session, the state should pause to properly assess where our industry stands rather than attempt to make incremental changes to an evolving industry. Our association will continue to support inclusion and diversity within the market, and we stand ready to work with all stakeholder stakeholders to create the most robust and equitable recreational cannabis industry in the nation. 
So um, <laughs> they're like, well, don't don't just make changes to make changes, you know. Uh, in the meantime, we'll sit here and wait for changes to be made. So in other words, like, don't change it. But we I, it's such an interesting pers- uh, stance to take, you know. It, it, it it's so disingenuous and, and two-faced i mean j- just to say we support diversity and inclusion but just not this way is like come on man like the, the, this the, didn't people vote to issue those social equity licenses absolutely right? and, yeah so the, the, they're going against the will of the, of the voters um they're excluding people from the market it, it's just so gross and toxic yeah. Well, to to close and just to remind people, because it's important not to forget this same uh, association, you can go back, read in the Chicago Tribune, Sun-Times. Maybe if I can remember, I'll, I'll put um, articles. Let me write that down. C-B-A-I articles. Um, if you look in the show notes, we might have some articles pre-legalization, folks, if you want to read. This same organization opposed the issuance of licenses going into 2019, which was our – or wait, was it 2020? I, it's a blur now. The point is going into our first year of adult use legalization, Pamela Altoff, the head of this association, said that the current operators are more than equipped and have enough capacity to – you know, float the market. And and they even asked if they could have at least up to a year without competition because they built this market. And guess what they've had? They've had almost two years without competition. And when they oppose things like this, they're extending that timeline. I'm just saying, folks, money yep. talks and this is purposeful. And, and, and for the listeners too, um, GTI the owner of rise dispensaries used to be a member of this association. And then last time there was a big vocal call out of the members of this association for supporting toxic bullshit. They left the organization. So let your voice be heard shop with companies whose values you align with and tell CEOs they're on Twitter. They're on, they're on these social media platforms. Tell them you don't agree with their business practices. You know, they they will change. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, folks. Put, uh, use your voice. That's for sure. So honeybeecollective.com. Once again, Chris's Twitter handle is going to be in the show notes. Chris, it's been a pleasure to speak with you today. Um, you too. I'd, I'd yeah. love to have you back on sometime in the future to talk about where Honeybee Collective stands. You said you're about to launch, right? Yep. Yep. So, uh, we're, we're just waiting on packaging actually, uh, it's coming in, uh, next couple of weeks and, uh, we, we're working with some great growers to get some really nice living soil grown cannabis out to the market stuff that is grown in a regenerative way. And is just beautiful flower that, uh, I think people will love to smoke. Well, congratulations. I'm looking forward to see what you guys can do. Like I said, don't be surprised to see my name come through as an investor in the near future. And folks, if you want to get in, uh, on your opportunity to invest and, and possibly build intergenerational wealth, do it. The link will be in the show notes and it's a really easy breezy way to get involved in the cannabis industry. All right, Chillinois, we will see you next time. Thanks for listening.